What our entire culture has forgotten is that in order to be great at something, you first need to be good at something. In order to be good at something, you first need to suck at something. In order to suck at something, you first need to really suck at something for an extended period of time. It's that willingness to suck that differentiates people who are great from everybody else. I was visiting administrators and liquidators and all saying, Jack, you can't trade out of this. You guys are gone. If your business's growth is capped or dependent on your personal input and your personal exertion, by definition, you are placing a glass ceiling on the growth of that business. You don't have relationship patterns. You've got inner child patterns that are yet to be resolved. Relationships are the best mirror for what's going on under the surface. Is it possible for a CEO or an entrepreneur to shift how they operate, work less in the business and start working more on the business? Unquestionably. Life isn't meant to be, you know, rainbows and skittles all the time. And it's the ability to endure either uncomfortability and or adversity that you have to be able to do if you want to reach a certain level. All right, guys, so this episode is with Jack DeLosa. You all would know who he is already. He's worth well over $100 million, incredibly successful entrepreneur, and generally, I believe, maybe the best podcast I've ever recorded, if not top three, top five, without a doubt. I intro him properly in a second, so I'll leave that for the podcast. I just wanted to say a massive thank you. Obviously, recently, I've been asking you guys to drop a like on YouTube, subscribe if you haven't already, and turn on the notification bell. The love we've been getting there has been really, really Really awesome. I really appreciate all the love. Um, and then again, if I could ask you guys to do that, and if you're listening on an audio platform, if you can just drop a review, um, let us know your thoughts and just put a five-star rating. That really helps the podcast grow. The more the podcast grows, the bigger and the better the guests are. So I appreciate that. Thank you for everyone who's been doing it so far and all the awesome messages I've got over the last few weeks. I appreciate you. Let's get into the podcast. All right, we have another awesome episode here today. Now, for the intros, I usually freestyle them. I have some notes, as everyone knows, and I try to roll them off the top of my head. But for you, Jack, you're a man with a very impressive CV, so I don't want to miss anything. So I'm going to read partially off my notes because you've you've done a lot in the business world. For anyone who's been into self-development or business over the last five, 10 years plus, they surely would have seen your face around many, many times. So I'll try do you justice. Now, for those who don't know, Jack DeLosa is the man that has arguably trained more business owners in Australia than any anyone else. He's also been listed on the AFR Young Rich list five times at my last count. I don't know. It could be more by now. Um, as I said, he's the founder of the Entourage, which, which is Australia's largest education institution for entrepreneurs, which has mentored over 7,500 businesses across over 150 industries totaling a revenue of well over $2 billion. Now, prior to the entourage, Jack co-founded MBE Group, which helped small to medium-sized businesses raise over $300 million from investors. And he's also a three-times best-selling author, including his latest book, which was described by Fred Shabester, who's obviously the co-founder of Finder.com, as the entrepreneur's playbook for anyone who wants to grow faster, work less, and live more. So Jack DeLosa, thanks for giving us your time. We've, As we said before, we've been in and around each other before, but first time to have a proper conversation. So I'm really appreciative and, and welcome to the podcast. Still, thanks for having me, mate. You're an absolute legend and uh, yeah, it's good to be here. For sure. Now, where I want to start is actually that last quote that that Fred mentioned is kind mm. of the purpose of, 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 of Elevate. Grow faster, work less and live more. Now, mm. that is the, every entrepreneur's dream. At least it's my dream. I'm mm. not the type of person and I know you're not. Some people, all they care about is stacking zeros in their bank account and they want to live and grind until their eyes bleed every single day. For me, I'd rather set up systems and businesses like you mm. that enables me to have impact but also live an amazing lifestyle. Mm. So first question, because a lot of people that may be a little bit more cynical will be thinking it, 
we'll grow faster, work less, live more. Mm. Is that really possible? Mm. It's 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 such a good question and 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 therefore a really good place to start. I mean, the, the journey of the entrepreneur is pretty universal, right? So I've got a very interesting vantage point in that I've been in business for coming up to 20 years now. Uh, I've been investing in and advising businesses for probably 15 years and then started the entourage about 14 years ago. So yeah. uh, even just through the entourage, we see tens of thousands of businesses a year. And so the, 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 the journey of the entrepreneur goes something like this. Um, entrepreneurs start a business, right? And generally speaking, as entrepreneurs, we have a deep understanding of the marketplace. We uh, sort of have a good empathy for consumer. And at a high level, we kind of envisage this product or service that can address this market demand and speak to that consumer need. And so in the beginning, it's all about alchemy. It's all about triangulating those three forces and creating something out of nothing. And this is where entrepreneurs shine. This is what we're great at. We're great at creating something out of nothing. And what drives the growth of the business in the early years comes really naturally to the entrepreneur, which is drive, it's grit, it's improvisation, it's work harder, it's cover up the stuff up. So it's, there are no resources, so get resourceful. And that comes really naturally to us. And the business is of such a size that one person can wrap their arms around it. Something then changes. The business grows and the business grows and the business grows and it gets to a point where it's too big for one person to wrap their arms around it. And so this is where you find the entrepreneur buried in spreadsheets, putting out daily fires, managing week-to-week cash flow, uh, dealing with HR issues daily or weekly, right? And so you've taken someone that's brilliant at leading from the front and you've buried them in operational detail. There's a few things that are wrong with that. A, we're not good at it. B, uh, it's not our highest and best use. It's 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 not the position where we can contribute the most to the business, the team, or the customer, or ourselves, or our family, for that matter, right? And thirdly, it's not why we start businesses. You don't start businesses to be buried inside of them. And so, at that point, the the entrepreneur needs to ask themselves: you know, they find themselves getting to a point where they're working forty hours, fifty hours, sixty hours, seventy hours a week. And so, there's something unsustainable about that. If your business's growth is capped by or dependent on your personal input and your personal exertion. You've only got so many hours in the day. Therefore, once you hit that 70, 80 hours a week, if the only way for the business to grow is through your personal exertion, well, then by definition, you are placing a glass ceiling on the growth of that business. And so what we specialize in is exactly what you just said, which is how do you grow faster while working less in the business? Is that possible? To the to, to the perspective of a technician, no. If, if all your perspective is, is, I must have one unit of input to create one unit of output and I must be the technician doing that. Well, under that paradigm, it's not possible. But when you understand that the job of a CEO, the job of an entrepreneur is not to market, sell and deliver a product. It's to build a business that can market, sell and deliver a product. Now, that takes years. It takes resources. It takes an incredible amount of discernment and good judgment. Uh, It takes capital. It takes senior leaders or executives in the business. And so is it possible for a CEO or an entrepreneur to shift how they operate, work less in the business and start working more on the business unquestionably? Like I literally see it, you know, probably every week, every month, right, with our, with our clients. Um, and, and, and the paradigm shift is I, I need to go from run faster, run faster, work harder, work harder to how do I become the architect? How do I become the engineer where I'm uh, sure I'm still going to be working hard for a large period of time? And this isn't something that you do 
overnight, right? As I said, it can take years. But how do I go from run faster, work harder to how do I build a structurally sound business that can operate without me? The other important point here is that what that gives you is choice. And so I'm, I'm big on choice. And the reason I'm big on choice is I think that a lot of entrepreneurs in particular spend their lives feeling stuck, right? I want to, I'm working 70 hours a week. I know I need to bring more team members on, but I can't afford the team members. In order to be able to afford the team members, I need more money, but I can't make more money because I'm already working as hard as I possibly can. And so a lot of entrepreneurship is how do I get out of these things that feel like binds? How do I get out of this stuck position? And so what we're aiming to do is give uh, entrepreneurs choice. And so like one perfect example of that is uh, one of our clients has been with sort of five or six years now, started with us doing 1.5, oh, sorry, started with us doing a million. Uh, now, five years later, they're doing about seven mil on the top line with a m- much more significant profit margin on the bottom line. And they're a husband and wife team. And so they get the business to a point where it's running without them. They can take holidays. They can um, work on more meaningful things. What, what they essentially do is they help uh, people invest into property, right, to achieve financial freedom. Um, and so they get the business to a point where it's seriously cash flow positive, strong revenues, stronger margins than what they were operating at. Uh, the wife in that team chose to bring her workload down to about four hours a week. And so um, she, her biggest challenge was like, how do I learn how to do nothing and how do I reshape my identity on the other side of, you know, this 10-year run of being really, really busy? Uh, whereas the husband in that team now chooses to work 60, 70-hour weeks because he's loving it so <laughs> yeah. much because of the momentum. And so that's what I mean by choice. It's It's not – suggesting that anyone should work less. It's not suggesting that anyone should work more. It's about suggesting that build a business that gives you the choice. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned something that I found really interesting and it's, I know, and cause I'm mainly from the e-com world, right? Obviously e-commerce is part of it, but you guys work across many different things, but it's exactly the same. And people, you talk about getting stuck in these situations and it feels like there's no way out. Mm. And something you said was like, I know it's a completely relatable situation. It's like, what do you then do? What some of the things people can do when they're at the stage when they need to hire so they can free up some time, but they don't have the money to hire yet. And the only way they can hire is if they bring in more money, but they start, what's the, what's the path out of that sort of moment and that space for a business owner? Cause like you can say, it can feel like when you're in it and you're, or, it, or it's all you can see, you're trapped in it. But from outside looking in as someone who's mentored so many businesses, there is always a path out. 90% of the time in that scenario, it comes down to focusing on improving the quality of their marketing and sales in that specific scenario. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Um, and I'll, I'll set some kind of contextual foundations for this. Every single business operates in a resource-constrained environment. doesn't matter whether you're the Entourage, doesn't matter whether you're Amex, Telstra, the Australian government. We all operate in a resource-constrained environment. We only have so much time. We only have so much money. We only have so much personnel. We only have so much brand equity. We only have so much customers. We only have so many funnels, whatever it might be. And so when discussing strategy, particularly for small to medium-sized businesses, what we're really discussing is resource allocation. How do you allocate the very finite amount of resources that you have? And time, sorry to cut you off, is one of those massive resources Huge. as well, right? It, yes. It's, it's often the main, time yeah. and money are the main constraints of any, of most small to medium sized business owners, right? Once you've, once you resolve the time constraint, the money constraint, the next constraint becomes know-how. Like, okay, I've got the cash, I've got yes. the time, but I just don't know how to, how do I build a leadership team, right? But money and time are the big ones initially. And so ultimately, um, 
when thinking about strategy, what we're really talking about is how do you allocate limited resources against unlimited options, right? And so we need to understand that every decision in business is an investment decision. When you choose to allocate half an hour to a task, that's an investment. When you choose to bring on a staff member, that's an investment. When you choose to spend 5K on marketing a month, that's an investment. When you choose to start building a leadership team, that's an investment. Every decision in business is is an investment decision. And what do we look for in investment decisions? The answer is asymmetry, which is how do I put in the least amount of input for the most amount of output? Um, not because you want to minimize your input, but just because we recognize that we're resource constrained. Mm-hmm. And so we want to have, we want to, we want to uh, deploy the initiatives that are going to require the least amount of effort for the most amount Max of return. return yep. Exactly. Where, let's say 90% of the time, when you look at a small to medium sized business owner, and, and particularly one that's totally constrained on money and time, usually the first uh, initiative that's going to give you that asymmetry is sales conversions. The second is marketing conversions. And so let's say we go into a business and they're converting uh, 20% of their leads. The vast majority of businesses don't have a sales process. They, 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 they haven't engineered a sales process to maximize conversions. They're kind of just selling intuitively. Even e-com businesses, you know, putting up landing pages, but there's not a lot of thought put into CRO. There's not a lot of thought put into nurturing people that don't buy. There's not a lot of thought put into retargeting, right? And so let's say we've got a conversion rate of 20% or you've got a landing page that's converting at 0.9%. We get those conversions from 20% to 40% without generating more leads. So we're not spending more on marketing. We're not spending uh, more effort on marketing. We're not even spending more time in sales. We're doing the same amount of activity but we're doubling the output that comes from it. That gives us that first inflection point and that first asymmetry point. And we've now got some surplus revenue we can start mm-hmm. paying with. Now, sure, that, that increase in sales is also going to fall on delivery. So you do have an increased delivery um, output required there because you're making more sales. But provided we can uh, address that and deliver on that, what we've done is it's like, okay, Jack, it's cute. It's a 20% increase in sales. I said, no, no, no. If all of the other metrics hold, we've just doubled the revenue of that business. All we did was improve the sales process. And so let's take an e-com business, for example. You've got a land page that's converting at 0.9%. But, and, and again, you would see this. People would come to you all the time for mentoring around e-com type style businesses, right? And it's like, okay, uh, let's look at the headlines. Let's look at the subheadlines. Let's look at the copy. Let's look at the images. It, it, it's the fundamentals. None of this is rocket science. It's the fundamentals of what I said before, CRO, conversion rate optimization. You can take a, a landing page that, that hasn't had any CRO from 0.9% to 1.8%. Again, we just had a really significant 100% increase in revenue in that instance that we now need to deliver on, yes, but we haven't spent any more time or money from a marketing or a sales perspective. And so often the play is because most business owners are, are entrenched. If, if, if you kind of look at there's really three things you need to do. You need to market, you need to sell, you need to deliver. And then within that, there's a bunch of stuff you need to do around scaling, like team and operations and financial management and stuff. But really three things that we all do. We market, we sell, we deliver. Out of those three things, the vast majority of entrepreneurs spend the vast majority of their time in delivery, which is either product development and delivery or service development and delivery. Which, which often means the go-to-market stuff, the stuff that generates the revenue, the marketing, the sales, is often below average to begin with. And that's not a criticism because the focus on delivery is necessary for the first period of time, right? It's also not a criticism because it's a goldmine. 
you know, if you've built a business, whether it's doing six figures, seven figures, eight figures, we have some businesses doing like, you know, they come to us doing $20 million a year. They're not doing any marketing. Um, nor have they got a, a, a sound sales process that's that's maximizing conversion. It's not even close I imagine to that's it. quite exciting when it's, those businesses it's, it's, walk in the door. It's hugely exciting. Uh, and those are the ones, you know, you, you, you might look to sort of invest in and help them grow from a partnership perspective. And so it, 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 it's, it's frightening but also exciting just how many businesses are successful with subpar marketing and sales. And so to, to, to bring it right back to your, your initial question, usually the, the lever out of the bind of I don't have the time, I don't have the money, I don't have anything, and I'm working 70 hours a week is improve the quality of your marketing and your sales. Take that surplus revenue, and I'm going to use the word revenue here, not profit, because it's not going to go to the bottom line. It's going to be paid out as divvies. We're actually going to take the revenue and use it to start backfilling you in product delivery or or admin or ops or wherever you're spending your time now. And so our whole kind of, not our whole, but usually the playbook is generate surplus revenue, deploy that revenue against backfilling the entrepreneur wherever they're spending their time on low value activities currently elevate, which is why my book's called Elevate, elevate the entrepreneur to a point where they can focus on marketing and sales. And usually at that point, that's usually a pretty fundamental shift in the trajectory of the business where they never look back because you've now got a delivery function that's running, whereas previously it was taking you 40 hours a week. It's now taking you six hours a week in oversight and management and dealing with big customer complaints, whatever it might be. Um, and, and they're now focusing on marketing and sales uh, and they're getting good at it. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we're now able to generate more revenue. Generally speaking, for small to medium-sized business owners, there's a fixed cost base, right? Um, and so generally speaking, if you take a business from a million dollars to two, three, four, five million dollars, that incremental increase in revenue uh, has a disproportionate amount of profit margin because the fixed cost base is already is, covered. Yeah, it stays relatively the same. It stays right? relatively the same. It, it, it might increase, but it will increase slower than your revenues. Definitely. And so and so at that point, you start coming into more revenue, greater margin, and then they can do things like start to employ leaders in the business. So I want, a, I want a director of sales, someone that can head up this function without me, and they can drive growth in our sales function or our CRO function 50, 60 hours a week, and I'll spend an hour with them a week in a one-on-one and, you know, be available to them around the clock. But, you know, that, that then the sales function takes up an hour a week of my time. And so – Generally, that's the play is, is, is improve the quality of the marketing and the sales. We can then start, once we've got the surplus revenue, we can then start to improve the quantity of it if we'd like to. Um, but that's the first unlock that's it's often the first domino in a really exciting chain of events that follows. Massively. So it's just like, again, we've, we've all heard this so much and I know I've only been in business for about six years now since, since we launched. And the realization that you go through and that when you hear all these like old cliches about business and then you go and experience them, you can hear something, but then when you experience it yourself, you really understand it. And for yeah. me, that was prioritization. Even if we were mm. hiring, even if once I built out the team, there were so many things that I had on my list as the director of the business that I wanted to do, mm. but realizing, and this took me probably a year or two to start to fully understand that it's like, realistically, I'm not going to get to do everything I want to do. What are the biggest, most high value tasks I can spend my time in? Mm. And often I was only spending 15, 20% of my time on them and getting caught up on that hamster, hamster wheel 100%. of serviceability and deliverability of actually doing the thing. 100%. So sometimes it just takes you stepping back a word from a mentor or a, a small perspective shift that makes you realize, hey, you have all the tools you need to break through that glass ceiling. Just a quick one for me. 
If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'd know that after scaling Happy Skin Co. to over $10 million per year, I spent close to 18 months creating the Viral Brand Builder program which teaches someone with zero experience how to launch and scale their very own e-commerce brand. With over 100 training videos and direct access to me, including one-on-one calls, you'll be guided throughout the entire process. Now, we already have a bunch of incredible results from students that are making multiple five and six figures per month. So if you want to learn how to build a business that has the potential to completely change your life, then click the link in the description and book in an application call today. Spots are limited as you'll be speaking directly to me. So hopefully I'll chat to some of you soon, but until then, let's get back to the podcast. The the other thing with that is it's so easy to get stuck in reactive stuff. Oh yes. You know, it's, 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 it's the path of least resistance for the human psyche. If I can, let's say I, I'm not an expert in sales and, and I know nothing about Google AdWords or uh, meta advertising, so I, I don't, I'm not great at marketing. I, I can stay busy in my 60, 70 hours a week in the whirlwind of my business, completely unproductive, not really making money, stressed to the hilt, and a lot of people are subconsciously choosing that reality over stepping back and, and addressing the discomfort of confronting the areas that, albeit are going to be significantly more rewarding, are going to be uncomfortable for a period of time because I'm not a master of it yet. And in this whirlwind, I feel really needed. I feel I, I am really busy, so I feel productive even though I'm not entirely productive. And so a lot of people would choose the whirlwind over doing what's effective because it's because thinking, you know, Henry Ford said thinking is the hardest thing we can do and that's why so few people do it. And so there, there is a bit of psychological choice in, in, in that exact dynamic. I can tell you've mentored so many businesses because everything you've said so far has been so spot on relatable <laughs> to my own experience as well. But do you think, and it's like, I feel point, like, mate, yeah, to, yeah, to, to, you, said, you said it took you a, a couple of years to realize, I mean, you're obviously an exceptional entrepreneur and if, if you realize that after two years, you're significantly ahead of the curve. Most, mo- most business owners, if we talk about like the average business owner, go through their entire life in the world. We're never even considering that there might be a different perspective. I think as well, it's, it's, it's spot on the, the uncom like not wanting to deal with that uncomfortable feeling of transitioning into something different, maybe not being really good at it. You're comfortable. You might be busy, but you're comfortable doing those tasks. And sometimes for me, I think it, it can be subconscious and they're not aware they're doing it. Exactly. Or a lot of the time it's verging on the conscious and they know that they can feel that voice <laughs> telling exactly them, right. but they're like, ah, oh, I don't want to deal with that right now. That's I, I think that verging on the consciousness is is a perfect way to put it. I, I think a lot of people kind of do, you know, every now and again they, they they would have a glimmer of a thought that says there'd be a more productive way to do this but I would have to step outside my comfort zone mm. and I'd have to step outside the familiar and even though this whirlwind, and, it, and, it, and it's crazy when you look at it objectively and you examine it properly. It's like I'm choosing 60 hours a week, not seeing my family, stressed to the tilt, sleepless nights over spending a few weeks uncomfortable figuring out something new. The, the, the fundamental thing here is that what our entire culture has forgotten is that in order to be great at something, you first need to be good at something. In order to be good at something, you first need to suck at something. In order to suck at something, you first need to really suck at something for an extended period of time. And so we've built a culture in today's world where, you know, we see all this success and accolades and private jets on Instagram and we think that we should be able to achieve that in an instant immediately without realizing there's a huge period of sucking at something before you get decent, before you get good, before you get great. And so it's that willingness to suck 
that differentiates people who are great from everybody else. It really is. Yeah, it really is. What's your experience been with that? Was this something that was natural to you? I'm talking about you on your personal journey as an entrepreneur getting, well, first of all, realizing that the key to actually being successful and achieving that level of proficiency you want is you have to suck first because so many people, at least I see it in econ, maybe it's a slightly different crowd. They'll try a business and if it doesn't work in one, two, three months, they give up. But realistically, if you look at, you know, some of the people I've had on the podcast, some of the biggest brands in terms of direct to consumer brands, retailers in Australia, it took them years to become any anything that resembled successful and profitable. Yeah. If yeah. they gave up, they wouldn't exist. But because yeah. of this like fast pace, like instant gratification world we live in, so many people I'm seeing anyway are giving up and not realizing no, even being shit at something and 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 sucking and, and learning and scraping your knees and failing for one year, two years, three years, even at times, is part of the process. But what mm. was what was it for you that made you realize that and and accept that and be used to, you know, that process of being uncomfortable with a new skill or a new task or a new business model and then still not being discouraged by that? Uh, that is, that is, is such an exceptional question. Uh, and as you're asking it, I was kind of just reflecting and, and, and trying to develop a constructive answer. Um, to, to be honest, I, I think, I think I might've been fortunate in that regard for two reasons. Firstly, I did a lot of, uh, what people would call personal development from a very, very young age. And so my mum. Uh, you know, was a, a TAFE teacher who 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 quit that job. My dad was in corporate, quit that job. They started a not-for-profit organisation called Breaking the Cycle that would teach young adults who were at risk kind of out of jail and from abusive homes and stuff, teach them life skills and employability skills so that they could get meaningful jobs and, and progress in their career. And so, you know, I was six kind of growing up in mum's classroom type thing and mum would be driving me to school and um, – in in the car would be is back in the day the cassettes cassette in the in the in <laughs> yep. the player um you know playing Tony Robbins and the classic yeah and she was a, you know she was an NLP uh, master practitioner and teacher and so and then and, and so I was I was reading like the one minute manager sorry listening to the one minute manager cassettes at the age of fourteen and fifteen I was you know I only found this when I was in my early twenties but. Uh, Tad James had an NLP certification that was like 20 CDs or something. I'd forgotten I ever did this, but I must have around 15 or 16 listened to those CDs and then I found in storage years and years later two binders that were that thick of paper, you know, size 11, 12 font printed, two binders. So I'd listened to Tad James's CD and, and written out what must have been 2,000 pages, or you know, as a teenager. And, and, and so, for, and so I, I, I learned a lot about psychology, neurolinguistic program, cognitive behavioral therapy, personal development, high performance strategies, all that kind of stuff at a very, very young age. And, and so that gets you really comfortable being uncomfortable because it, that's what it's all about. It's all about pushing yourself, being outside your comfort zone, all that kind of stuff. And so that, that's one area where I think maybe I was a bit fortunate in the realization that we're talking about now. The second thing is, is I just, for me, it's just always been clear. I, I think I've just always, it's, it's almost logical, right? Like um, I remember saying, you know, to, to my friends in high school, like somebody that got great at, you know, we could have been talking about anything. They, they, they didn't start great. Like the first time, like if we're talking about an artist or whatever, the first time that artist did a drawing, that drawing would have been really, really bad. And so it just seems that the, to me, the logic has always been sound that you have to be, willing to be bad at something for an extended period of time before you can get good at something. 
And so I, I think it's a combination of sort of having a grounding in personal development, but just it, it's always been pretty clear and obvious to me, the logic of it. That actually makes a lot of sense um, as your origin story, because as I said, like all the achievements you've done, you know, the $100 million worth and all these amazing achievements you've done, you're still a very young man. And the yeah. fact that you've done all this where it's like most people start, at least I started my personal development journey around 21, 22. And I'm a big believer and that's why I think people really need to be really careful the podcast they listen to and the TV shows they watch. Cause I, I believe the, if you watch something or listen to something enough, if you're one of the people that, you know, just wants to veg out and listen to one of the gossip podcasts, whatever, there's, there's a time and place for that. Yeah. But the stuff you listen to enough becomes your thoughts and it gets ingrained in the way you act, the way you think. And we all know the earlier stages in life is like, you're, you're really like Plato, right? So you listening to that at 14, 15, 16, Makes sense how you were able to, you know, be the man you are. And I'm not saying this to big you up, but I was really like curious of how did you become this person, like such a well-rounded person with all this knowledge at such a young age? So that mm. makes sense. I think, and I asked that question partially because I'm still going through that journey myself, right? Sure. Something that was a blessing and a curse for me is I was naturally good at a lot of things. Yeah. So when I find things <laughs> yeah. I'm not good at, I don't want to do things I'm not good at. You right. know what I mean? Just right. naturally because you feel good when you're good at something and that served me when I was younger in school and sports and whatnot. But now in business, I had to reflect and catch myself out on times. I'm avoiding something because it doesn't feel good, but when I 100%. know it's the right thing to do. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's, I mean, it, it, again, not, not to big you up, but, but you must, you must be pretty exceptional at being uncomfortable. Otherwise you wouldn't have built the successes that, that you've built. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the, it's the, willingness and the acknowledgement, like even when, you know, in 2016, we went through a really, really difficult period. The whole industry changed, right? Yes. Because I, 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 I mean, the entourage, we work with business owners, right? But alongside that, I created a college because we had a lot of demand from mums and dads and students of, you know, little Janie and little Jimmy wanted to come and study at the entourage. We really only work with business owners. So we didn't have anything. So I needed to build a accredited college came in really successfully. Government ended up changing the regulations about six months in and the whole exercise probably cost us, I don't know, six or $8 million. And, um, you know, we, we were in real trouble, like, like, like extreme distress for probably extreme distress for probably a year. And then we're in real trouble for probably another two years after that. And so, you know, being in distress for a day is enough to drive you crazy. <laughs> being in distress for a year is, is, is crippling and, and in, in, in every facet of your life, psychological impacts, health impacts, sleep impacts, nutrition, every, everything, you know, my brother had twins. I didn't see them for the first year. So, um, when something like that happens, the other thing that, you know, I, I think has been a strength for me is, is I, I literally will say to myself, this is really going to suck and it's really going to suck for probably a long time. And you can choose to quit, but for, for, for people like you and I and many of your listeners, it's not really an option. You don't really consider it as an option. And so it's, this is going to suck. It's going to suck for a long time. I'm going, I, I'm okay with that. I'm accepting of that. I'm going to communicate to the people around me so that they understand what I'm about to, you know, commit myself to, and then I'm just going to take it a day at a time. And so it, it's similar to the uncomfortability conversation. It's about just being um, real and acknowledging that life isn't meant to be, you know, rainbows and skittles all the time, and 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 it's the ability to endure either uncomfortability and or adversity 
that 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 you have to be able to do if you want to reach a certain level. Did you were you having those thoughts at that time during that period, or is that some clarity you got after that and have taken forward? At, at the beginning, yeah. At the yeah. Be- I, I literally remember thinking to myself, uh, you know, I was I was visiting administrators and liquidators and all saying, Jack, you can't trade out of this. You guys are gone. And I remember saying, not saying, but thinking to myself, I, I refuse to accept that reality. I understand that on paper that's what it looks like and, and believe me, on paper that is what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I refuse to accept that reality and so I'm going to fight and, and, and choosing to fight. I, I just knew how difficult it was going to be. So it's almost like you can go through a difficult period resenting it, you can go through a diff- difficult period resisting it and wrestling with it every day or you can just go, this is going to suck for a long time and I'm okay with that. That's big. That's really big. At least for me hearing that is like, you know, because people talk to come up to me to want to like, they see success of all, you know, all the people that they look up to in business and they'll be like, Oh, I want to start a business. I've got two jobs and I have like an extra four hours a week. And like, you don't, people don't realize what being in business entails and how much of it sucks. I love it. And I could never do anything different. And I'm in now and I wouldn't change it for the world. I couldn't change it for the world. I found my thing. I couldn't not start businesses if, if I tried, but I think that perspective shift, I've had the awareness for a long time that, you know, business isn't always sunshine and rainbows. And so that's made me fine with it. But actually just when you said that, like saying to yourself, now this is going to suck and that's, that's okay. And that's part of it. Yeah. It kind of makes you enjoy that suck even a little bit more. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just, exactly. just part of it. It's just the season yeah. I'm in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you can, if you can learn to not just tolerate and accept it, but uh, actually enjoy some of it, and and how you would enjoy it is not you're not necessarily you know going through legal cases enjoying it but if you could if you can allocate twenty minutes every couple of days to journaling mm-hmm. and reflecting on what's the hidden gift here what's the hidden lesson here how is this giving me some of the qualities and the leadership qualities of the uh, resilience qualities that previously I was seeking if I invited this into my life for a reason what would that reason be you know and and so there's our periods of our greatest challenge are our periods of our greatest growth. And if you can if you can be conscious enough to pause every once in a while when you are going through a really challenging period, which is when you're in the period is is the least is the time you least want to find a lesson in it, right? Because because <laughs> it's, it's, it's usually not the time of that conversation. But it, but it, but if you can allocate some time to have those realizations and integrate that into your entire experience, then 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 there might be glimmers of enjoyment throughout it. What was it for you going through that whole experience? And obviously it was completely outside of your control, the government changes that they made. For a lot of people, could be a humbling experience, could question their their own self-worth, self-belief. How did you go dealing with that? Obviously you'd already been in business for a while, but what was that like for you in, in terms of your own mental health? Did it have any effect? Did you have to put more of an emphasis? Okay, I'm going to do my journaling and I'm going to spend more time on things that make me feel good and, and, and be able to get through this. Cause if you don't look after yourself in a crisis, it's only going to be, you know, a matter of weeks, months until you're in a state of burnout. And mm. then you're really buggered if you're in that sort of situation, mm. experiencing burnout at that time. Yeah. I mean, to that final point, often, you know, an entrepreneur most needs their holiday when they can least, least afford to take, take one, you know, so that's, that's a, that's a cruelty of reality in and of itself. But yeah, to, to, to answer the more broader question. Yeah. I, 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 so before we spoke about how at the outset I knew it was going to suck and I was accepting of it. However, in 2016, 17, I probably wasn't equipped with all of the um, emotional and psychological strategies to navigate it as consciously as I might if I'm going through a challenging period today. 
And so 2016-17 for me was the absolute destruction of all of the scaffolding that I'd put around myself. And what I mean by that is as business owners and entrepreneurs, we identify so closely with our business. We're so attached to the image of being the successful person and always winning and having year-on-year growth. And and there's so much enmeshment between who we are and the attachment to those outer optics, let's call them. And, and so, 2000, you know, 2016 was the destruction of all of that scaffolding for me. And it takes years to, to deconstruct it all. But that's, that's what, it took me years of suffering to uh, see myself as something independent from the scaffolding that I had constructed during my successful years. And so, well, that's a painful process that causes one to, yeah, like, you know, like imposter syndrome and questioning yourself, like, am I really as good as I thought I was and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it, but it was the, it was a necessary catalyst for me to become a better operator, a better CEO, a better leader, a better manager, a better son, a better brother, you know, my current relationship that I didn't have back then, but today a better partner. Um, there's, there's, there's probably thousands and thousands of lessons and transformations that occurred as a result of the destruction of all of that scaffolding. How would you sum that up if you could in one ego general? death? Ego death. Wow. Yeah. And and when I say ego death, it's it, it's really important. You know, if, to I, what I'm not saying is I don't have an ego. You know, if, if you're a human with a head, you've got an ego. And right? I think it's I think it's necessary and healthy to have an exactly, ego. Exactly. Exactly. Well put. Really, really well put. Yeah. It, I think having an integrated and healthy ego is is a you know we couldn't do what we do if we didn't. No way. So, no way. So it's really important. Like I said, if you didn't have any ego, when everyone's telling you you got to shut the business down, there's no way out. Maybe you right. listen to them, and entourage isn't standing here where it is today. Really good point. And so it's, it was it was it was the ego death of that version of me. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to ask something that um, you speak about in in your books and in your, in your teachings with the entourage is becoming a conscious wealth creator. Yeah. Now, I love that terminology. I kind of know the type of entrepreneur you are. And that's something that I can relate to a lot. As I said in the beginning, I'm not extremely motivated by money. I'm not either. But what does it mean mm. in your own words for people listening to become a conscious wealth creator? I'm really interested mm. by that. Mm. Consciousness is an interesting word that that I think you know can be a little bit high level and 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 vague and therefore someone would be right to go well, how, like how do I do that right and so for me consciousness is basically just uh, ha- having an awareness of the different aspects of your life and having an awareness of uh, your inner world having an awareness of the people around you and how they're doing and so unconscious to me would be working 70, 80 hours a, a week in a business. Like if, like if you took, you know, you could take like the stereotypical corporate executive, 50-year-old male who's working 70 hours a week and he's getting drunk on Friday and taking cocaine on Saturday and he's, he, he, he's making money but he's doing, he's unconscious to everything else, including his inner world. He's, that's, that person that I just described is not happy internally. But he, but he, but he's not even connected or aware of that unhappiness because his only focus is: Am I making the money? Am I driving the Ferrari? 
whatever else he, he might be looking to attract from an optics perspective, right? And so conscious, a conscious wealth creator is somebody that um, is consciously connected to their inner world and their inner state of being. How am I really doing? Um, am I finding this fulfilling? And, and the answer is not always going to be yes. And the answer doesn't always need to be yes. You're not always going to find it fulfilling every day, but, but, but having the awareness around how you're doing on a day-to-day basis brings consciousness to you in a world. Um, am I showing up for the people around me in the way that I would like to be? Uh, am I looking after my team in the way that I would like to be? How do my customers feel right now? Um, how am I doing from a health and a nutrition standpoint, right? And so being a conscious wealth creator is just somebody that is uh, not making money at, at all costs. And I mean at all costs because a lot of people are, like a lot of people are. It's uh, am I living holistically in a way that's reflective of my personal values and how I choose to live? It's the whole, you know, Confucius thing, an unexamined life is not worth living. Um, an unexamined life is an unconscious life and an examined life is a conscious life. Um, and I just think that the journey around business and entrepreneurship or career or relationships or any area of your life, um, when, when you can bring a higher degree of awareness to it, you enjoy it more, it's more fulfilling, it's richer, and it's a healthier way to go about life. So for people that may not be living like conscious and they can at least have the self-awareness to see that and admit that, these sorts of questions, I'm, I'm sure for you it's, it's integrated in the way you think and operate daily, but how often should p- people be asking them, them themselves these questions? Should it be every night when they go to bed, if they journal or diary? Should it be at the end of a month or quarter? How, can, how and when should people start asking themselves these questions so that they can start shaping it in a more positive, healthy, mm. conscious manner? Mm. Such a good question. So I, I, think, I think all of the above, right, um, the other thing I'll say is that even I go through seasons of this sort of stuff. And so, you know, my partner Amanda's in the room. She she knows that over the last month I'm probably spending 90 minutes every single morning journaling. But for the six or nine months prior, I was probably journaling once every two weeks, right? And so we all go through seasons where we're adhering to more of our own strategies and seasons where we're not so much. So that's the first thing. But um I think when people start to ask themselves these questions, the, the biggest trap that we can fall into is I'm going to go on a retreat. And uh, we well, you know, go on a med- <laughs> and, uh, uh, Also speaking from personal experience, so you go on a meditation retreat for a week and then you come back and you continue operating the exact same way that you used to be, <laughs> but then you go on your next meditation retreat six months later. And, and so consciousness shouldn't be a retreat. It's better if it's integrated into your everyday as best mm, as possible. Yep. And so there's several different levels to this. So let's just go through each one. The first one is what I call happiness strategies. And so this is what are the things that when you do, you feel connected to yourself? And for everybody, it's completely different. For, for me, it's, it's as simple as time with Amanda, time with Ariella, journaling, time by the ocean, going to the Blue Mountains. Man, if I spend two days in the Blue Mountains, I, I feel uh, 10 foot tall and bulletproof, right? Like. Um, for other people, it's going to be time with the kids, time without the kids, playing the guitar, painting, cooking, whatever, doing nothing, meditating, yoga, gym, running, whatever it might be. Um, it's what are your happiness strategies? Because the things that are easy to do are easy not to do. 
and and how do we start rehabitualizing them into your everyday? And that might be twice a week, three times a week, four times a week, whatever. Second thing is I think journaling is a really useful practice because because it takes the unconscious and makes it conscious, which is which is the difference between living unconsciously and living consciously. Like you can't overstate the difference between, you know, the, those two points. And so journaling is cathartic. What we tend to do as human beings, we're really good at looping and so in our thinking. And so if you've got a problem, you'll think, oh, man, I wish this wasn't happening and, oh, man, this person did this to me and then you get pissed off and then you get sad and then you get despondent and then you go, oh, man, I wish this hadn't happened to me and you'll go around the loop. Some people can loop in their thinking for years, decades. You know, we probably know people of previous generations that have been stuck in loops their entire life. The thing with journaling is you won't loop because you won't write the same thing twice. And so it forces you to think constructively and it forces you to think linearly where you're not, if you're journaling, you're not just going to write about a problem for 10 pages. You're going to write about a problem for three quarters of a page, get really bored and then tell yourself the solution and you're going to go do the solution. <laughs> and so, true, true. you know what I mean? And so it, it's, um, it makes drama really hard when you're, bringing, when you're examining what's going on in your life. And so, and so to come back to your point around frequency, how often should we do it? The, the answer is as much as you comfortably can. You know, if you can be doing something every day, even if it's for 10, 20 minutes, it's going to make the world a difference. I think what's become a problem today, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would agree, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this. Like you said, you've got to give yourself moments throughout your week where you're doing the activities where you're connected to yourself. I've been guilty of this at times, and I know a lot of people are. We live in the day, age where like you refresh your phone and then there's a million new pieces of information all the yeah. time. I've got a two minute walk to the bin. I'm going to put a podcast in yeah. and I'm going to be in the sauna. I'm going to listen to a podcast. And sometimes you, we don't give ourselves enough time to oh, be man. and be bored and let, let our like thoughts take over. Yeah. Crazy. I, yeah. I, 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 I think everybody, including myself, serious, seriously underestimates the cost of what you just I said. I know. Yeah. So uh, yep. Andrew and I went to the Blue Mountains two weekends ago and we were just getting ready at our place and I thought to myself, you know what, I've been on my phone a lot lately, I'm just going to leave it at home. And so I was without my phone for two days, like mid-Friday to mid-Sunday. And I, I was one who was driving us there and literally every 20 seconds, she, yeah, exactly, you pop the, pat the pocket, look in the door, look in the middle, where's my <laughs> phone? And then I go, oh, I don't have it. Yeah. 20 seconds later. Looking at the door, looking at the middle, right? And um, the the addiction is something that becomes so much more starkly obvious when you remove the device or the stimulus in this instance. Um, I, I, after a day, I wasn't searching for my phone anymore, so that was really good. But it was amazing to me at the level of clarity and connectedness and connected time that we were able to spend together because I just removed the fucking thing. Right. And so, and so I've now started to do that. So like I've now started to integrate that into my everyday. And so what I will now do is my phone will uh, stay in my work bag. And so if I'm at work or in the office or working from home, I'll have my phone there. Um, and that might involve doing some social media stuff, but I'm not just going to be scrolling. If I'm doing anything, I'm doing it with purpose and volition because I'm in work mode. Right. And so I've got it there. When I get home, the phone either uh, stays on a particular bench charging or stays stays in my bag, and I'm and and mate, I'm sleeping better, I'm feeling better, I'm feeling more connected, I'm um I feel less clouded, I feel less like business is all consuming. 
Because a lot of us feel like business is all consuming without realizing you are actually spending a couple of hours every evening disconnected from business, but because you're scrolling through social media, it feels like you're still connected mm-hmm. into that yes, whole world. Yes. And so, yeah, what, what you're raising is a, is a very real thing to the point where after this Blue Mountain I was thinking like, man, how many teenagers are living right now, people in their 20s that don't know life without a smart device? I, I think we're going to lose generations to it, particularly with the, with the onset of AI and, uh, you know. seen all the Apple Vision yeah, Pros yeah, 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 stuff already. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I, I think, again, if if we can approach the relationship, so I still use my phone. My phone is a necessary tool to operate effectively in today's world, but am I using it or is it using me? That's a good, really great point. Am I yeah. consuming social media or is social media fucking consuming me, Right. And, and I think a lot of people, if, if they got really honest with themselves, would know the answer to that. Yeah, and I think that it definitely has to be a balance. You can't reject technology, particularly no. how, how important and pivotal it is to, to what we do in business. But setting limits and boundaries, I think, is something myself and probably 99% of people listening can do a lot better. 100%, using it consciously. Yeah. I wanted to take it back to some of the business stuff. Now, I know at Entourage, there's two main programs you obviously meant like mentor and you have a community of over a million like entrepreneurs and, and, and people that aspire to be entrepreneurs. But the main two programs you guys run um, as part of the entourage is, is accelerate, which takes people from six to seven figures. Exactly. And then the, the other one working with um, elevate, working with seven and eight figure businesses to either yeah. grow from seven to eight or become more profitable. I want to, if you can, and I know each of these could be a whole hour or a whole week workshop, mm. but how would you summarize the key focus areas on that first step? going from six to seven, mm. the business owners that are in that stage, what should they be focusing on to get from, you know, a six figure business to seven, kind of break that down and simplify it as much as you can without, you know, staying in here with me for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a really good question because every stage of business has different constraints and therefore different strategies that you deploy against those constraints. And so like from zero to hundred K, the core constraint is uh, product market fit. Do I have something that people want? And uh, building a product or a service that people want but can use and and uh, will speak fondly of, right? From 100K to a million, it's it's then really how do I take that to the world in the most efficient and effective way, marketing and sales, to scale from, you know, 100K yeah. to that first million dollars. Um, and then when you get to a million dollars, it's here's the thing. The two aren't necessarily all that different but there are some nuanced differences. So when you're, when you're a business doing seven figures or eight figures, we still need to improve a lot of the marketing and the sales. It's not like, you know, business gets to some, you know, some people think doing a million dollars is a lot of money or doing $5 million is a lot of money. You still are really in, in the, in the scheme of things, you still are quite a small business and quite a, uh, to use it, immature business at that point. And so for both going from six to seven figures and from seven to eight, sales and marketing is a huge area of development. It's just that with a six-figure business owner, you're doing it uh, slightly more um, tactically and at a ground level, whereas for a seven or eight-figure business owner, there might be opportunity to bake in some of those structures working through other people. So it's more about building out their team in a profitable way. Yeah. Now, in terms of the business owners that are looking at, you know, making more profit. Now, 
again, a lot of people can be all consumed by top line revenue. You know, mm. the classic saying revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. Mm. What are some of the things when you're working with some more established businesses that you and your team look at when you go in, okay, I'm consulting to a business, where are the kind of key areas of opportunity that you can speak to? Obviously it's difficult not having a specific business or industry in mind, but what's some of the things you look at to a business, whether it be processes or numbers or margins when it comes to, okay, let's actually, we don't even have to right now talk about growing top line. How do we just improve bottom line from what we're doing? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really good question. Often, often you can achieve both with the one um, initiative. And so what, what we will generally look at is how to increase profitable revenue. Right. Yep. And so what I mean by that is um, how do we deploy intelligent and efficient and profitable lead generation strategies? And so a lot of businesses are either marketing on an ad hoc basis or not at all. And if you can, and the reason they're doing that is because they're viewing marketing as an expense. They might spend five grand a month, 10 grand a month, 50 grand a month on it. And they're either not tracking an ROI or they're not getting an ROI. And so if we can deploy effective and efficient lead gen strategies, and track their ROI and prove that it's profitable, then essentially we have an unlimited marketing budget, right? Uh, the second thing, as we've discussed, is sales conversions. The other thing with a lot of business owners in, in that has, a, I mean, all of these things directly and significantly impact profit, but the other thing that does, which a lot of business owners don't fully consider, is price. And so as business owners, we're really good at undervaluing ourselves because we know all of our flaws and there might be a bit of imposter syndrome and there's operational flaws in every business, even the big businesses that you'd think are perfect, they're not. And because we're familiar with all of the flaws and operational deficiencies in our own business, we we undervalue ourselves and that reflects in undervaluing the product or the service and, and that extends to undercharging. And so for about 90% of small to medium-sized businesses, they already have permission to significantly increase their price. Now, if you increase your price, let's say let's say you charge $100 for your thing and let's say uh, at the end of the year from a net profit before tax perspective, let's say you're operating on a net margin of 10%. Let's say we take the price of your thing from $100 to $110. It's like, you know, it sounds like an insignificant price increase, but it's like where does that extra $10 go? And the answer is straight to the bottom line. And so if you're operating on 10% net margin, well, we're now operating on a 20% net margin from a, from a slight 10% increase. And a lot of small to medium-sized business owners have permission to increase their prices by significantly more than 10%. Do you find, sorry, do you find, because you work with so many people, when you have that conversation, you're one of your coaches, hey, you might need to look at increasing prices. Is it, <gasps> can't do that. Is that yes. like the first reaction? It's always the first reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so there's a there's a few different elements to that. There's there's some industries where increasing price isn't the right initiative, right? Maybe they're operating in a hyper price sensitive environment or industry and therefore an increase in price would be net negative. And so you wouldn't do it in that instance. Or they're, you know, lodging like government tenders and the government makes decisions purely on price whatever it might be. And so 5% of the time it's not um, intelligent to do, but 95% of the time it is. And the reason for that is it all straight to the bottom line. So they already have permission to increase price. But if we can improve the quality of their marketing, the quality of their positioning, the quality of their messaging, the quality of their sales process, the quality of the CRO and the landing pages, well, now we have double permission to increase price because there's a significantly higher perceived value to the prospect that's coming through that buyer's journey. And so 
Um, it, there is a disproportionate amount of uplift in price increases that are often lying dormant in the vast majority of high growth businesses. And like you said, it's lifting bottom line and top line at the same time with just a, with just a few pivots exactly. and changes in the business. Exactly. Now, obviously a big part of a big part of growing a business, if it's eight figures and, 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 and scaling beyond that is building a team. Now we could talk about hiring, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And I've had my own battle scars from that and learned my own lessons from that. But mm. one thing I want to ask you about just on that topic of kind of HR is you were voted like the entourage was voted from best places to work is one of the top five places and yeah. companies to work for in Australia. What do you put that down to? And what do you think builds good culture and culture is a word that's been thrown around a lot, you know, over the last five years, but what do you define good culture as? And what do you kind of put that success of the entourage down to in, in that capacity? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really good question. A lot of the time our clients will come into our entrepreneur development center, which is just here in the city in Sydney and they'll come up to me or one of the other executives in the business and they'll be like, why is everyone so happy here? Like, what what do you guys do? And like, they're like, is it you know, is it alcohol infused? Like, everyone seems to be the same kind of Irish crazy. Coffees, everyone. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like what are, what are you guys doing? Um, and so yeah, there, there definitely is a palpable culture to who we are at the Entourage. About uh, about ten years ago. I went on a bit of an exploration that started with asking myself a couple of questions. I I noticed that there were certain brands in the world that I connected with and that other people connected with beyond just the products or the services that they offered. And so today some examples would be uh, Tesla, Google, Tiffany's, Virgin, you know, for some Harley Davidson, uh, Mercedes, Boost Juice, Red Bull, right? There's these brands that have transcended the products or the services that they offer and they occupy a unique place in the hearts and minds of their consumer. And so the question I was asking was how would one reverse, firstly, what is that? And secondly, how would one reverse engineer it? And I thought about this for months. And the, the if, if you were to go back to first principles, the first thing to understand is that what makes these brands different is not a tagline. It's not their uh, logo or their corporate ID. It's not their marketing. It's not who they say they are. It's none of those things. And you get to a point where you eventually realize what makes them different is who they are, like genuinely who they are in their DNA and the fabric of the business. And so it's like, okay, well, that's not very actionable. How do I reverse engineer that into things that are? And so how I did that, and, and, and this is discussed a lot in the corporate world, we, 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 we do it and discuss it very differently at the entourage and with our clients. But how I would reverse engineer the DNA of a business is through three things, their vision, their mission, and their values. And so, and again, everybody has different definitions for this and, and a lot, in a lot of ways, vision, mission, and values, and even talk of it has kind of been bastardized by corporate misuse. Like yep. Enron, they had four values. One of them was integrity. You know, like now they're all in jail. And so, and so I'm fully aware that when done as a as an exercise, similar to the things I said before, it's not their corporate idea. It's not who they when, – when done as a surface-level manufactured exercise, it doesn't work. But when you're truly inquiring about who are we as, as, a, as, a, as a business and who are we as a collective – 
of individuals. That's when it gets that's when it starts to get interesting. And so my definition of vision is what's the purpose for existing beyond financial gain? So what are we what are we aiming to achieve here beyond our own self interest? Mission is what do we do every day and who do we do it for to help us achieve our vision? And then values are what are the unique principles? So not trust, respect, integrity, you know, these 80s kind of corporate stuff. But what are the genuinely the unique principles that capture and define and communicate who we are as a brand and, and as a business and as a culture? And when done honestly, um, vision, mission, and values is kind of the practical capturing representation and communication of who a business is. And so once you've done that and said like, okay, what ties back to vision, mission, values? And the answer is everything, who you recruit, how you recruit, how you induct, who you promote, who you have to fire. Because whenever you go through, uh, whenever any business goes through a process of becoming more self-aware as a culture, uh, one of the benefits, even though it might feel like a headache at the time, is the people that aren't a fit will deselect themselves out or you will need to deselect them out. That's healthy. Right, and so uh, we should we should hire according to it. We should fire according to it. We should market according to it. We should sell. You know, your business. I'm not sure the extent to which you've gone to defining your vision, mission, values, but in in many ways that's kind of secondary. Your business has a really palpable DNA. It has a brand. It has an ethos. It has a personality, and so it's really hard to recruit people that aren't aligned to that because because they wouldn't even apply, let alone get through to the second interview, and so. Um, everything should tie back to vision, mission, values. I'll, I'll, I'll finish this particular point by bringing it back to, if I was to say to you that you take two individuals, one has a high degree of self-awareness, they know who they are, they know how to get through adversity, they know what their values are, they know what they want to achieve in life, you could extrapolate just from that tiny amount of information I've given you, you could extrapolate that to you know what's going on in that person's life. You're probably picturing someone that's healthy, that's, uh, whether they're in a romantic relationship or not, their relationships are healthy. Um, they're directed when they're going through a hard time. They're um, able to coach themselves through it. You, you, you're picturing a certain kind of kind of person. Now, if I said picture somebody that lacks all sense of self-awareness, they don't know who they are, they don't understand their values, they don't know where they're going in life, they don't know how to get there even if they did, um, therefore, when adversity comes, they flail about like a leaf in the wind. Just from that small amount of information, you're, you're picturing a certain kind of person right now. The same is true of businesses. The same is true of cultures. And so what Vision Mission Values and the DNA conversation is about is how do we create a self-aware business? How do we create a self-aware culture so that we can make friends accordingly, so that we can direct our life, you know, the business accordingly? Um and it's it's a profound exercise to go through. Now, the entourage that would you say that is a reflection a lot of it of your own personal values, missions, and all of that, or is that something that because it's so established is living and breathing outside of Jack Delos? So even though you've been very closely tied and you've actually recently stepped back into CEO of the of the of the business, mm. how, are those two things intertwined? Are they similar? Are they a direct reflection? How would you? Describe the relationship between yourself and your values with that of the entourage. Yeah. I, I think I think the most influential factor in the culture and the DNA of a business is the culture and the values of the founder. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, you know, you can see that in uh, businesses like Virgin, 
You can see it in, in businesses like Apple, you know, pre and post Steve Jobs. Um, and so the founder is unquestionably um, where culture starts. Um, the, the distinction that you want to get to is where the business can operate without my operational involvement, um, but I still lead it, guide it, and shape it. And so a good example of this, I, I often equate the development of a business similar to the development of a human being, right? And so, you know, we've got a 10-month-old uh, daughter right now. We've been really fortunate. She's actually an absolute angel. So, she, <laughs> I mean, she looks after herself most of the time. But for, for most babies, they'll be, you know, they're screaming, they're making lots of mess, they require 24-hour supervision. It's the same as a seed state business. It's going to make a lot of noise, it's going to make a lot of mess, requires constant supervision. And then you've got, you know, like a startup business kind of around that seven-figure mark. Uh, and a startup business is like a teenager that's kind of figuring out who it wants to be when it grows up. Um, and as a teenager, it's recalcitrant, it's rebellious, it often doesn't do what you tell it to do. There's a bit of attitude to it, right? And what we're trying to do as parents is what we should be trying to do as founders, which is to raise autonomous children. We're always going to be the parent. When they're in trouble, we're going to be the one they call. Uh, we, we're all, we, you, you want to have a close relationship. You want to be connected, but you don't want to be in there telling them what yeah. to do every hour of every day. And the problem with a lot of entrepreneurs is, is they've, they've got a business that's doing 5 million bucks, 10 million bucks. They've got a, they've got a 25 year old child that the parenting is if they were six. And so you've got a dysfunctional child. And so there's a difference between op- being independent of me operationally and being dependent of me from a parenting standpoint for, 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 for really lack of a better word. Now you, you often describe business as a spiritual journey. I've never defined it in those words myself, but when I, when I saw that, I thought that's spot on Mm. your business is, is a reflection of yourself. How would you, well, first of all, let me just ask you this. What does that mean to you? Business is a spiritual journey. Yeah. That's, that's the best question to start with. Um, I just, particularly in the beginning of, you know, MBE and the entourage, let's use entourage as, as the example. Um, you know, in business, you start out with an inspired feeling in your heart and inspired thought in your mind. And it's, and at that point, it's nothing more than that. And then the seed starts to take root and maybe you start thinking about it more and then you start voicing it out loud or journaling it to yourself. And then you start talking to other people about it and then you start it and then it's got a website and it's got marketing and it's starting to reach out into the world. And then you've got customers that are coming into this ecosystem. And, you know, in the case of the entourage, we'd be sort of three, four years in and I'd be standing on stage in town hall with 1,200 entrepreneurs there, whereas four years ago this thing was an idea in my head. And to me there's nothing more spiritual than that because it's, it, it's the most visceral example of creation that I had personally experienced with the exception of now being a parent at that time was the most visceral example of creation that I had ever experienced. And so that's what I mean by business is spiritual. A lot of people, not a lot, but there's, there's, there's enough people and I'm sure you would have come across them as well that, you know, they might come to you for mentoring and say like, Jack, like, how do I, you know, I want to increase my business. I want to, you know, I'm doing $2 million a year. I want to do $10 million a year. And they just want to know the nuts and bolts, the finances, the, the, the hacks and the tricks, but they don't want to do any work on themselves or they don't believe that's part of the process <laughs> at all. How interconnected is it? And in your, in your experience, is it possible to have a long-term successful growing business if you just completely reject doing any sort of work or reflection on, on yourself and your own character? 
That's a really good question. And and there's there's kind of several dimensions to that. So if you go out into the world and you take all of the actions required to generate leads, convert sales, deliver to customers, and every, and, and they're they're happy with those transactions, and you're a terrible person behind the scenes, you will have a successful business. Because all that really matters in that one-dimensional context is are you taking the actions required to have a profitable business where customers are happy and therefore that you're not damaging your brand or anything like that over the medium to long term. So so it, in a world where we view it kind of from a really isolated one-dimensional perspective, is that possible? Yeah, I suppose. The, the, when, when you go a little bit deeper than that, the thing is is that in business things are tricky, things get hard, business is slower than what we'd like to admit a lot of the time. Um, we're going to be thrown challenges. We're going to question ourselves. We're going to um, feel fatigue in some periods more than others. Um, while all of that is going on, we've still got life happening and our personal relationships and familial relationships and all of that kind of stuff. And so do I believe somebody that, because the, the brilliant part about your question was long-term, right? Do I believe someone can be sustained success in business long-term without ever doing any work on themselves? No, I don't. I, I agree. I agree. Um, another term connected to that point is something I'm probably a little bit less familiar with, but it's, it's something you've spoken about and it's very much related to what we've just spoken about before. And a lot of people, particularly males, you know, that if they've been in business 10, 15 years and you want to talk to them about, you know, doing the inner child work, they will laugh you out the room and be like, I'm right. not doing that. Right. What is the relationship that can play to, you know, work smashing past limiting beliefs or unlocking blockages, subconscious or conscious that may be holding a, an entrepreneur back from fulfilling their true potential? Yeah. The, the inner child work is a really interesting exercise to go through, I think. So as we spoke about before, I was doing a lot of personal development psychology work from a very, very young age, but I never explored the inner child stuff. And for me, it was because a lot of that personal development world will say, you know, you go see a psychologist and they'll just talk about your past. Don't worry about your past. You can change in an instant, just create your future. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I subscribe to that. And it served me really, really well. Beyond my own experience, I think there's two things that prevent people from going back and looking at their past. One is I had a perfect childhood. My childhood was fine. There's kids starving over in Africa. There's, there's, there's kids that are in a home with abusive parents. What right do I have to be so ungrateful? My childhood was fine. That's the first thing that stops people from going back and looking. The second thing that stops people from going back and looking is my childhood was so bad. There's so much pain there that I will never go back and look at it, right? Um, fortunately, I belonged in the first camp. And so it was like, well, I had parents that loved me. We, we went a large part of my childhood without any money and, and different things, but by all kind of on balance, we always had everything that we needed. We never starved and I had two parents that loved me and I came up in a happy family. So like, and, I, and I'm such a person that's so, uh, I, I always want to maintain perspective. I always want to maintain gratitude. I never want to judge anybody, particularly my parents. So it's like child work, like my parents were perfect and I don't want to be critical of them and who the fuck am I and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and the, the catalyst for me was having a friend, she said to me, she said, Jack, until you've done all of that, everything else is bullshit. And I was like, okay, because I really trusted her transformation. Okay. And, um, and so what, what is inner child work? It's essentially from the ages of zero to seven and then seven to 18, 
we all, all of us, experience things that um, negatively affect us and influence us in the future. And it could be as small as, um, you know, one day you were three years of age and you reached out to your mother in the supermarket and she didn't see it and she turned around and walked the other way and in that moment you felt rejected and a seed was planted around I'm not worthy and mum doesn't love me and I'm unlovable. Now, that seed isn't going to take root as a result of that one experience, but a seed might have been planted that then from a human psyche perspective we continue to water and, you know, you get to the age of 25, 35, 45, 55 and you're still carrying some of that belief. Or it could also be the other, which is like, you know, uh, I've sat in rooms with people that were abused beyond imagination. And so it can be small. They call it little T trauma or big T trauma. And so, again, Fortunately, most of my stuff was little T trauma. Like I had a brother that died and my parents separated and all that kind of stuff. But but again, I, I always had everything that I wanted. So I don't consider that I experienced much big T trauma in my childhood. Um, but whether it's little T or big T, it doesn't really matter. It, it's probably still there. And so when I started to to go through the exercise of what you're essentially doing is reflecting on the experiences of your childhood and asking yourself, where did I – start to adopt some beliefs or misinterpretations of what was going on to the extent that I still carry them today. And when I set out on the sort of inner child journey, I was like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to analyze and I'm going to do it with all these uh, coaches and therapists and mentors and I'm going to do, I went to Arizona and did a couple of weeks of courses. I was like, what is, it's going to make me a better psychologist. Not that I'm a qualified psychologist, but it's going to make me as smarter as it pertains to psychology and I'm going to be able to really accurately assess myself and judge myself and all this stuff. And through going through it, what happened was kind of the opposite to that, which is it was amazing to me at just how much what we experience from zero to seven and seven to 18 influences the patterns that we run today, particularly the negative patterns. And so science that you're carrying unresolved trauma is like inability to moderate, like you have to go all or nothing on every aspect of your life. Um, it might be... Uh, jealousy, which is disproportionate to the, um, the, the kind of impetus that you're getting. Um, it, it, it might be your, your running patterns in your life. It might be around nutrition, training, relationships is probably the biggest minefield where our you know, unresolved trauma gets reflected back to us. Um, but you feel like there's patterns that are continuing to run in your life and you feel powerless over them. In that instance, you are carrying trauma from childhood that you are yet to examine. And all child, all inner child work is, is going back and examining them consciously through the lens of an adult and kind of reprocessing them to reintegrate them. And what happened to, for me was it, I, it wasn't that I, I was able to start judging myself more accurately, which is what I set out to do. It was that I developed such a compassion for myself because I could see and understand genuinely where some of the undesirable patterns I was running, where they originated and how they originated. And so I was able to kind of reintegrate them more constructively. And so if you have triggers, is that a good place to look to sort of unpack that's, where that dude, sort of started? Beautiful. Yes. That's, that's the only place really. Yeah. The, the, the best form of personal development. And this comes back to what we're saying before, people would rather be stuck in the whirlwind than take the uncomfortability of looking at shit that's going to be hard. <laughs> and so it's so a very few people do what I'm about to say, but it's the most purest form of personal development. 
when you are triggered and the bigger the trigger, the more enriching the lesson, that is your guideposts for the work that you are yet to do. And so the best form of personal development is, oh, that really triggered me. And and a trigger by definition is like excruciatingly uncomfortable. And so what does the human psyche want to do in that instance? Retreat, which is what spend, people spend their entire lives doing. I was triggered. And so I'm either going to attack you or the stimulus that triggered me because that will make me feel better about it, or I'm just going to retreat. But it's fight or flight. It's one or the other. And so the best form of personal development is this is seriously triggering for me. Every part of my being is begging me to run away or to fight, and I'm going to do neither. I'm going to go inward and ask myself, where is that trigger coming from in myself? That's the best form of personal development. And then another really good question to, 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 that often comes up on the back of that is, well, Jack, what if I'm just surrounded by an asshole, and, and how do I know whether it's their stuff or my stuff? And the answer is a great question. The answer is this. If you are triggered by it, that is your stuff. They can own the behavior. They can own the stimulus. And you don't need to take responsibility for that. And often things happen to people that, you know, we don't deserve. So that's their responsibility. But the trigger is yours. So regardless of, and and regardless of what their behavior is, and and there's probably a a reason that they're exhibiting that behavior, you still need to take responsibility and look inward on the trigger that has occurred in you. Exactly. Right. Now, and I can definitely relate to that. In business, I was very much the way I looked at my personal development. I probably really got into personal development probably around age 21 and it started just one time listening to Gary Vee and then you know, the the secret and the law of attraction and all these things. And I looked at law, uh, personal development like building blocks. Up, 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 and that was really serving me and it really was. Yeah. Until I got into a serious relationship um, and then I realized like, wow, no, I need like, and I'm sure at one point, I would have had to go back for the the inner child stuff for business. At this stage, the building blocks were working, but with relationships, it made me oh shit! I need to look at the foundations of this. If I want, <laughs> I can't just keep reading another book and learning another thing and thinking that's going to solve it. So, yeah, that has very much been the journey I've been on and trying exactly to understand my myself. And and mm. and yeah, so I'm very much in that. So I don't have advice on that, but it's very yeah, it's 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 something that I've recently started to find enjoyment in doing yes. and it's not easy at the start it's like you know uh, uh, ambitious male that's go 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 and wants to do all these things yeah. to stop and slow down yeah and take stillness and inward thought yeah. to move forward but you need to do that to move forward at time so that's yeah. kind of been the journey i've been going on that that was exactly my journey and you know the 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 quote of you don't have relationship patterns you've got inner child patterns that are yet to be resolved and so relationships are the best mirror for what's going on under the surface. The other thing that you mentioned in terms of like, you're just go, go, go is all personal development and that worked really well in business. And then you got into a relationship and that reflected some of the deeper stuff back to you. That's exactly my journey as well. (laughs) Right. And so here's part of the problem is we live in a world where if you're able to shut off all emotion, just go high performance, just do the things every day that make you successful. We live in a world that rewards that materialistically. And we live in a world that also rewards that with, let's call it status. We applaud the martyr that sacrifices everything, that builds a successful business and makes the money. And so that's part of the problem is is we're often not looking at individuals or our own life holistically enough 
to understand what's really going on for them. Entrepreneurship is a trauma response. Yeah, no doubt. You know, um, and so we often go into business because we've got something to prove. We've got someone we want to say fuck you to. We want to prove that we're better. Entrepreneurship is a trauma response. And so often what you explained is like the the universal pattern that I've seen, which is the personal development peak performance stuff is great to get you going and get you successful. And then hopefully at some point in your life, something will happen that will prompt you to bring more consciousness to your inner world and go inward. And for you and I, that was relationships yeah. predominantly. Um, and that's where you start to become a more well-rounded human being. And I didn't see it coming either. Yeah. I mean, just Yeah. yeah. Well, particularly because when you've done all the personal development stuff, you know you all the words. You the complete package, yeah. maybe. <laughs> you think wow. you're done. I know the finished product yet. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I'm with you. While, while we're in relationships, a couple of last questions about relationships and we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, obviously your, your, your partner, Amanda sitting, sitting in the room, you're recently engaged. Congratulations on that. And Thanks you so. have a young, a young baby less than a year old. I wanted to know for you, how you guys as two people that both have your own businesses, both extremely busy, what's the relationship dynamic like and how have you made it work with two incredibly busy people with your own individual schedules? How does that work for you? Yeah. I, I mean, I can answer from, from my perspective, it might even be worth asking Panda as well, but we're so incredibly values aligned that we come at things from the same grounding, the same philosophy and the same values. And so, you know, for example, part of what that looks like is um, we're both really committed to firstly one another, secondly, having a healthy family life and, and then somewhere sort of outside of that also having successful and fulfilling mission in the world where we're able to contribute. And so we want to be doing it all. And we recognize that in order to do it all, there's some administrative things that that you can't do. And so like one example of that is, and and Panda puts this really well, she was speaking about it at an entourage conference recently. Um, and the response and the feedback we got, particularly from the mums in the room was was both surprising but also really encouraging. She was talking about having a nanny. And I, uh, when you mentioned nanny, I started to think like obviously you need to have a certain degree of income to do that and so not everybody gets that opportunity and so there's workarounds when you don't have that opportunity. But we're talking about um, the importance of having, let's call it having support because for Panda and I, Panda's family is in the Gold Coast. My family are in Melbourne. We live in Sydney. And so we don't have any support other than um, employed support, right? And so we're talking about that. And, you know, one sort of um, comment that Panda got from someone early on was like, oh, we, we don't want a nanny. We don't want someone else raising our kids. And so that prompted us to kind of reflect on a little bit. We're like, hold on a second. We're having all of the meaningful moments. We're spending a couple of hours in the morning. We're spending a couple of hours at night. We're spending whatever time throughout the day. You know, next Tuesday I've got, uh, there's an hour mid-Tuesday to go to Jimbaroo, which is, you know, Ariel is 10 months, but they've got <laughs> these ramps and these um, yeah. tunnels and stuff that they crawl through. So I'll, I'll run away from the office for an hour and go and do that. And, and so we made a conscious decision. We want to be involved in all the meaningful stuff. And there's a lot of admin that we've started to kind of call it tongue in cheek that comes with um, being parents and we outsource the admin of it. And so 
Um, to come back to your question, like how have we found that it works, the, the answer is remarkably well because when you are, well, I, I don't want to generalize too much because sometimes you might have an A-type personality who's with a supporting personality that might not be an A-type personality. That dynamic can work really well as well. But what I've found um, in some previous relationships is that dynamic can come with a lack of empathy, meaning the person that's that's not running a business or chasing their dream doesn't understand how integrated into our fucking DNA that is. And while it needs to be managed and we need to consider other people in our lives, it's not really a choice. Like if I said to you, Dill, you've got to stop your business, stop personal development, stop chasing your dreams, you'd be like, I'm, I'm, I'm literally incapable of doing that. And even if I was capable of it, I wouldn't want to do it because it's such a fundamental part of who I am. And so I think the values alignment between Panda and I is amazing because it comes with that empathy and that understanding of we will never ask one another to not follow our dreams or to, or to, to, not, to not be true to who we are. And we both come at it with the same philosophy of um, whether it's actual life admin or parenting admin or operational admin in a business, how can we uh, delegate as much as possible to free us up to be uh, operating in our genius zone on all levels, in the relationship, in, 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 in our families, parents, and in our businesses? I had the same piece of advice, a very similar story um, from Michael Lane, CEO of Forbes Australia. Yeah. He said they had the whole, you know, conversation around do we get a nanny, do we not, they did it. And they said it made everything so much better because the time they do get to spend, like you said, they get to do the important things. But then when they're right. doing them, they're present, they're not stressed, exactly. they're fully there and in the moment. Exactly. And I know it's a you know privileged position to be in to be it able is. to do that. Yeah. But I think you know a lot of people listening are going to be in business for the rest of their life. You need to set up systems to enable yeah. you to do that. Now, having a kid. That's another yeah. big spanner in the works to this whole oh, process. Dude, it's the best, How has yeah. having a baby influenced the way you see the world and, and operate in, in business? Uh, it, 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 it is the most fundamentally transformative thing that, you know, a human being will ever go through. Um, other than that, it's completely irrelevant, but, um, yeah, no, it, it, it's, 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 it's fundamentally transformative. I, we were talking about this with a friend a couple of days ago. Um, and I think what happens is, you know, I prided myself before becoming a parent on not being too caught up in what other people think. After you have a kid and you've got a, f- a family that, that you love, the degree to which you care about what people think, like, goes through the floor. <laughs> like, because you're like, like, I, I like, for, like, if I speak on behalf of myself, I love Panda. I love Ariella. They are the most important things to me. And so, you know, even if it's a small thing, like, you might be going to a speaking gig and speaking to a room of a thousand people. And once upon a time, that, that you might have been kind of, questioning are they going to like me and how am I going to be perceived and all that kind of stuff. And now that chatter is, is, is minimal because honestly, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? yeah. I don't care. And so, and so because you care so much about your um, child and hopefully your, your partner and, and your home, um, you know, it's a whole thing of we've only got so many fucks to give and if, and, and, and hopefully home is getting a lot of that care from you. And so it so it puts everything else in perspective. The other thing I'd say on it is the the opposite is also true, which is 
um, when when home is good and relationship is good and and home life is good, because um, what I was just talking about was me kind of contributing care to them, and therefore, what while I absolutely care about other people and all that kind of stuff, I don't, I don't the, the concern on an image level doesn't concern me anymore. But then the reverse is also true, which is they give me so much, right? And so I feel so full and grateful and joyful. And so it's made me then a more present and grounded and empowered leader and manager and thinker. And I'm not reacting to stuff like I'm like I might have. Like the small stuff, you don't sweat that as much. And exactly. And even like, you know, we spoke about before being an unconscious entrepreneur. When you're when you're operating from a place of pain, and so let's say um you're stressed, um maybe business isn't going well or business is going well and you just want more. And so there's this angst and there's this grit and there's this grr and you're plugged in and you're pissed off. You make worse decisions because you make short-term decisions that are focused around alleviating your short-term pain as opposed to what's best for the business or the brand or even myself in the long term. And so the more the more okay you are, the better decisions that you make. And so when I say I don't react, it, it is absolutely the small stuff, but it's also – to the to the to the big stuff as well. You're able to make more grounded, more holistically intelligent long-term decisions because you're okay. One part of me that really looks forward to to, to having a, a kid as well is like I know I've got this like self-growth silver bullet in my back pocket because I know it's going to challenge me to yeah. go in yeah. all sorts of ways I could never do without doing that. <laughs> exactly. So apart from changing everything, it doesn't change much at all. Exactly. Eh? Exactly. Um, one last relationship I wanted to touch on completely rewinding back to the start of your journey, but there is a really important message in that, that I wanted to, you know, because I get people, you know, offering to, you know, you know, trying to find a mentor or try and get their foot in the door, working for someone that they really respect and admire. And it's the relationship that you, you forged with Ruben Buchanan. I believe he was the partner of, um, was MGB group, MBE, MBE group. Yeah. You were 21 years old, like a, a real green high energy entrepreneur who partnered with someone. Yeah quite a lot further down the line. Explain to me how you formed that relationship and then the way you approach networking. Yeah. And we'll leave it there because I think there's a, a really valuable story and lesson in this. Yeah. So if you're seeking a mentor, the one thing you should never say is, will you be my mentor? <laughs> right. Because if you want them to mentor you, it's because they've obviously achieved a level of success in the field that you're after mentorship around. Uh, and, and and will you be my mentor just sounds really heavy and obligatory. And it, 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 you, you need to invest better in the relationship to get them to want to be your mentor rather than will you be my mentor, right? And so Ruben was the founder of Wealth Creator Magazine. And so Wealth Creator Magazine was big when I was a teenager. And, you know, most teenagers go to bed with certain magazines under their bed. I went to bed with Wealth Creator under, it's like, you know, like Kerry Packer on the front, Mark Bohr, you know. And so those are the magazines that are under my bed as a teenager. And so I, I, um, idolize this magazine, idolize this brand. Uh, Ruben then, so this must have been um, 15, 16 years ago, he started um, helping medium-sized companies raise money, acquire businesses and build value to exit businesses because he had sold Wealth Creator at that point. And so he was doing that really well, kind of, you know, mid-sized transaction range. Um, And he then got engaged to do a speaking tour on that topic for smaller business owners. 
And at the time I was running a personal development company in Melbourne and, and, and Ruben was living in Sydney, coming to Melbourne to do a seminar. And because he was so successful outside of that game, I knew that he would be doing it half-assed. And so I sent him an email. I said, I know you're not from Melbourne. I am. I know you don't run seminars. I do. Uh, who have you got helping, helping you on the night? And he said, nobody. And I said, okay, well, I'll come along and I'll, I'll do this. 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 And I'll do it all for free. And so out of nowhere, he's got this, you know, I would have been 20 at the time, like, you know, wearing suit and tie, <laughs> thinking, you know, trying to act like I was 40, but I was very much 20. Um, and he, you know, I just came out of nowhere for this guy and, uh, you know, I was there an hour early and, and helped do everything that needed to be done. And, I, and my, my whole strategy was just go there, help out and identify the next need. Uh, and so while Ruben was exceptional at business, he wasn't a speaker and that was his strength. He wasn't a speaker. And so um, they were selling a program, but they didn't sell it well. And so I said to him, and I knew the answer, I said, who's doing, afterwards, I said, um, who's doing the sales for you after, because, you, you know, we had something like 2,000 people in the room, something like 20 people bought the thing. And, and you know, with, with how good Ruben is, how much credibility he has, he should have had 200 by yeah. the thing. And so I said, who's doing your sales? He said, no. I said, okay, send me the list of everybody that attended. Uh, pay me nothing other than the commission, other than commission on the sales that I make, and then I made him, you know, something like forty grand in the next two weeks, which which isn't a lot of money and wasn't a lot of money for Ruben. But again, it was this kid coming out of nowhere, helps out one night, and then you know generates an extra forty k in two weeks that you didn't ask him to do, um, and so you know my commission on that would have been anywhere from four to eight k type thing, and so you know I was um, remunerated for it as well. But what he was selling was a weekend where he's going to go through the, the the topics of capital raising and acquisitions and exits in more detail. And so after I did that, he's like, come to this weekend. I want you to learn what I'm doing and then I want to have a meeting with you. Um, and then that meeting was to say, let's start a business together. I'll be the talent and the dude on stage. You're going to be the co-founder and the dude running the business and 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 and, and that's what we're going to do. And so I packed up my stuff from Melbourne and drove to Sydney and we started MBE. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Cause I feel like a lot of people think, and maybe, or, or clearly you were, you were that story you just shared was long before Gary V popped up. And I feel like, you know, six, seven years ago, Gary V go work for free, go work for free. Maybe yeah. back then it was less prevalent and someone said, you're willing to come work for free. That was great. But now yeah. it's like successful entrepreneurs get that all day, every day. Like if you sing, yeah. how can I help you? That enough time to think how some random no, person, like exactly. no disrespect can help yeah. you create it's, the value first exactly. and then watch how, it's how actually, things change. It's actually an insulting question to ask because you're putting the intellectual labor on me. If yeah. you're asking, how can I help? It's like, Man, I don't have time. Like, I don't have time to think. I've got. I'm thinking about all this other stuff. If you want to help me, that's that's. You need to do the proactive thinking. It comes back to you know thinking is a hard thing to do, uh, and 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 propose something, or even don't propose. Just do it. Just do it. Show me. A hundred percent. Exactly. Now we mentioned you're stepping back inside to CEO of of the Entourage. What's coming up over the next twelve months in that space, and where can people find you or any of the resources if they're interested in more information? Yeah, man, Entourage is absolutely flying at the moment. We're having so much fun with it. It's been interesting for me coming back into it. it the the key distinction for me coming back in has been um, you you can absolutely step out and be operationally diluted, but with Entourage for me, it's such a labor of love that. When I am that little bit closer to it, I can influence it um, so much more thoroughly, and 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 in doing so, create a lot of uplift, you know, across the board. And so, uh, at the moment, we're 
we're really enjoying working with our Elevate members, seven and eight figure business owners, um, because we're helping them go from a million dollars a year to a million dollars a month, working less in the business than what they were previously. Um, and so we've just opened that up in America. We've opened it up in Singapore. We've opened it up in Vancouver. Um, and so the entourage right now is about, you know, over the last 14 years, we've been a market leader here in Australia. And that's our primary kind of objective going forward as well is to continue what we do here in Australia bigger and better. Um, but how do we take that movement to the world? Because a lot of business owners out there that need a lot of help. Um, and so we're now taking the first steps to do that. Then I imagine the entourage on on all the socials and entourage.com.au. Best place, best place for me is just on Instagram, yeah. Jack Delosa. Perfect. There we go. Um, Jack, it was a privilege and an honor to get to speak to you. I enjoyed it. We could easily could have gone for another <laughs> another t- hour and a half. Um, maybe one day in the future we'll do a part two. Appreciate you, man. Legend, Dylan. I, um, I, I, I love everything that you stand for, what you're doing in the Vice education person, space and, and helping entrepreneurs. So yeah. much love. Keep doing what you're doing and thank you again. Legend, brother. Cheers. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, Do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.